This episode is brought to you by Rewind. Rewind offers e-commerce brands a solution that protects their stores against unexpected downtime. Rewind adds an undo button to your store, continually saving every change you make and backing up the critical data which runs your business. This episode is also brought to you by Outer. Outer creates the world's most comfortable and durable outdoor furniture made from proprietary fabrics that are both eco-friendly and water stain, fade, and mold resistant. This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 104 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Ben Goodwin, the co-founder and CEO of Olipop. Launched in 2018, Olipop is a popular brand of sparkling digestive tonics that contain eight to nine grams of fiber, less than three grams of sugar per can, and is dedicated to bringing the benefits of digestive health to consumers in a delicious, convenient, and accessible beverage. In this episode, Ben shares with us his entrepreneurial journey from starting an X-Men club in third grade to dropping out of college to starting a kombucha company at 20 years old, to building and exiting his first probiotic beverage brand, Obi, to launching Olipop with his co-founder, David. We talk about the importance of emotional intelligence as a leader and how he's learned to manage his emotions, what a recent brain scan said about how he processes information, how he came up with the name Olipop and how it's not related at all to Lollipop. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or you can check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Ben, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I'm so excited to hear your story in building Olipop. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Lee. Great to be here. We have a great conversation. Yeah, I'm excited to hear your story. I'm over here sipping on some Olipop, the vintage cola, which literally tastes like real cola. I don't know how you created this, but it's very accurate. Yeah, our perspective is that basically most people want to get healthy so they can enjoy their lives more. So the goal here is to make the process of getting to that as enjoyable as possible, which hopefully will will work. But I find it very enjoyable. So I, I think you guys did very well. So thank you for that. So you're calling in from Northern California. Yeah, I live in the woods. Uh, <laughs> I find I find pretty helpful. I travel a lot. And I personally, I don't do well with constant metro, like urban inundation. Yeah, it's just, it's too much. Like, like I don't like people. <laughs> people bother actually, me. Actually, 
we have this thing called a Hogan test that we do. I a did Hogan this, test. Yeah, it's a really cool psychometric. T- a lot of psychometric testing is pretty bullshit. And yeah, of course. But right, I've taken okay. lots of tests, so I'm looking at you like, oh shit. And I did what? What? Which Hogan, tests are what? What have you taken? Oh my gosh, what haven't I taken? I feel I just love personality tests and skill set tests, and they kind of just validate who I think I am. So that's why I like them. Well, okay, so that's actually a good point <laughs> on it. Uh, and if I'm getting too tangential, just let me know. But yeah, so that's actually the thing. One of the things that Hogan did quite differently than a lot of the other psychometric tests, because most, let's just take Meyer Briggs or whatever, like uh, that, it sucks up your data. First of all, you know, even though it's based on big five personality like modeling data that psychologists generally use the actual measure in Meyer Briggs is not particularly vetted from like a psychological standpoint, but irrespectively, let's pretend that it was, it sucks up the data that you give the test, but it's like, well, what if you're lying? What if you don't know yourself very well? Like people show or I'm up- just like answering questions. Cause that's what I want to be like, but I'm 100%. not really like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even that hard to like, look at the questions and, and kind of be like, this just seems better. Yeah, <laughs> like, I would like good. to be more extroverted. No, <laughs> 100%. But yeah, so the point is like, it sucks with the information and it gives you the result. But the, the reality is like, A, people don't necessarily know themselves extremely well and B, people are really complex. So what's great about Hogan is they actually, when they were first building out the measure about 30 plus years ago, they would take the people who were actually filling out the measure and then they have like a cohort of people around them. So their spouse, their friends, their boss, their coworkers. And what they tried to do was link up the answers and the trends they were seeing with kind of input from the outside. So it's something actually called reputational interpretation. And it builds a more objective measure for, for kind of like figuring out who somebody's showing up as over time. And then on top of that, like when you get an actual Hogan report, it spits out like, over a hundred pieces of data. So it builds you a much more complex and nuanced vision of who somebody is. I mean, I had to go through like special certification just to even be able to read it. Well, what did the Hogan test say about you? I'm insane. Uh, <laughs> no, it's really, it's really true. I'm actually, it's a, gr- it's a great thing that I'm the guy in the company that got certified because I have an insane person's Hogan. And that's accurate. That's totally fair. But it's like, when I see other people in the company's Hogan's, I'm never, I'm never like, oh, that seems like a lot because it's never more than mine is. Oh my God. (laughs) So yours is like, is off the charts of whatever. What does that even mean? Like, can you dive in a little bit more? Sure. So basically Hogan's broken down into your HBI, which is your day-to-day strengths, how you show up. Then it's your HDS, which is basically the, Diplomatic way of saying it is that that's your, those are your derailers. So when you're really stressed, when you're not kind of tracking and managing yourself, these are the different ways that you're likely to express yourself. And then when you get high scores in those areas, it means that these kind of stress mechanics might end up becoming maladaptive and dysfunctional. And then there's the MVPI, which are the things that motivate and drive you. So, so can you identify abusive people in this? Like, what do you mean derailers? Like, that sounds really aggressive. So, Hogan, <laughs> like derailing. I'm like, oh my God. That's their soft language on it. It is my impression that you can review the data to find clusters of traits that are less than optimal, but those are far and few between. But yeah, for the for the derailers, like by maladaptive, it's like 
those are different ways that you have successfully dealt with stress in your own past. So that can be expressed as a strength, but sometimes those strengths can be, be effectively what we call overused and then they can become maladaptive. So part of the process of the Hogan test is saying like, hey, I'm seeing this stuff. Do you think that's true? Let's talk about it. And then developing strategies that kind of keep those as strengths and don't turn them into, you know, destructive tendencies. Right, right, right. So, so it requires <laughs> a, a deeper conversation potentially after. So what were you like as a kid? Were you still crazy as a kid or looking back, were you entrepreneurial? I have actually always been pretty entrepreneurial. I started this thing in elementary school, like third grade called the X-Men Club. So like, I really liked X-Men, if that's not obvious. I got a bunch of kids together. I'm like, all right, guys, if we all take like 50 cents off our lunch money each day and pool it, we can like buy a bunch of toys. And then we can have this like cache of toys that we can always add. It was very cute. It did, you know, it went a little sideways. You got a little mobby. Mobby? <laughs> Mob, you got a little mobby. I don't know how much money we, we successfully saved, but I like tried to start this club like multiple times. Eventually the principal shut it down. I mean, no, it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't know, in high school or right, ap- right after high school, I guess right after high school, I discovered what coconuts, like young, those young Thai coconuts. And so a friend and I uh, started at the farmer's market booth, just kind of fuck it and did a market, farmer's market booth selling coconuts. Uh, I was throwing like raves and warehouse parties in my late teens and early 20s. You know, I dropped out of college to help start up a beverage business at 20. Yeah. I mean, again, like I think it goes with that. How far were you in college? What college did you drop out of? So I dropped out of UC Santa Cruz. I was going for environmental science. And I, I, before then I was at a community college. So I went all the way through the community college thing, which was like whatever it was two years or something. And then I dropped out of UCSC, like very, very early on, you know? And it was also like, I don't come from a background with a lot of money. And so, you know, I'm basically just like, I'm going to be, I know I'm going to be racking a bunch of debt going to college. I don't want to be dealing with that. Um, and I also just like, you know, again, this is actually that defiance coming into play because I remember like even the orientation, they were like, okay, show up and bring like $400 and you can sign up for classes at orientation. If you don't have the $400 then you can sign up in two weeks. And I was just like, is this how it's always going to be with you guys? Like every time there's a chance to spend money to get a leg up, like I'm going to get jacked because I'm like, working at a grocery store and I'm never going to be able to afford any of this. Right. Like the actual broke kid at college, not just the pretend broke one with rich parents right? at home. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I just was like, this is, this is stupid. And actually I read this, um, a book by the cliff bar founders, like white roads or something, which now they have white road capital. But I was like, yeah, I, that kind of introduced me to the concept of entrepreneurialism. I also had a mentor who's a guy, a black civil rights activist who won a Supreme Court case by himself in the 1980s, Coleander versus Lawson. He's the reason why it's illegal for police to ask for your ID without probable cause. So I was a co-executive producer at a theater that he was the executive producer for. It's just like all kind of combined. And I was like, you know what? Like, even though I got obligatory, you're going to be flipping burgers conversation for my mom. I just like, I don't, I don't think I want to do the college thing. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I guess, be an entrepreneur, I, you know, and then off I went. A lot of kids in college, especially now, I think they're really questioning whether or not it's worth it to be in school. What advice do you have for people, especially, you know, I think there's 
kids that are starting, you know, a business on the side or, and they're eager to jump into the entrepreneur seat and they're wondering, do I just crank it out for another two years or three years, however much they have left and try to keep doing it on the side or do they just drop out completely? It depends on like your temperament and orientation. It depends on what kind of support you have and it depends on what you want to do in life. Cause I'm at, I'm not anti-education at all. We do happen to live in the information age. So if you are hungry for knowledge, you can acquire it. That being said, there's also a massive amount of bullshit. So you have to become, your bullshit filter has got to be really like capable. But yeah, I mean, I think the re- one of the other reasons I dropped out of college is, and you know, is because I, I have this kind of like notion, like they're going to teach me what to think, but I really want to learn how to like how to think, like how to always stay hungry and how always, and I, I personally tend to do well with sink or swim environments. So you can throw me in that environment and I'm not going to flip out. I'm going to like crush my way through. Some, some people can't deal with that, can't deal with the stress of that. Right. So you've got to kind of know yourself and, and it's like, all right, if I have enough financial support to bang through this thing, and then it's like a some extra knowledge, it's a bit of a cohort of people, and it's a little bit of like something I could technically fall back on, then you might as well do it if, if, if unless it's crushing your soul. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, school can definitely feel like it's crushing your soul because for me, it was always just, it's like regurgitating information. Here's information, read it, and I'll give it back. Here's some more information, read it, and I'll give it back. And it's just like, what am I actually learning? Like I got really good at memorizing, but I don't think I learned to apply anything, you know? Well, so, I mean, even (laughs) when my sister got her degree, I built her a website and gave her like a marketing strategy. And within less than a year, she had like too many clients, you know, it's like you, you can learn like highly specialized knowledge, but there's a lot to entrepreneurialism specifically that is how to tell if someone's full of shit, how to tell if someone's going to screw you how to make like comprehensively, strategically intelligent, risk balanced assessments and execute with maximum effectiveness. Like those are these intangibles and that like leads to EQ, which is another thing that I'm, I'm pretty big on. But like, yeah, you've got to build those things up and develop. You have to learn to think for yourself and figure it out. And there's no manual for that. And so the thing with school is there's a manual for everything, it feels like. So when are you actually applying like real life skills to figure things out on your own? No, a hundred percent. Right. And the other thing as well is then you also have to watch out, like you get the degree and then that somehow comes to define you. And But then there's so many people with degrees, even law degrees that are like bartending, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's brutal. It's brutal. And there's a little, there's there's like larger, there's larger, forces at play that's facilitating that outcome but yeah i mean again at the end of the day it's like if you're an ambitious person drop out if you're just <laughs> dropping out because you're lazy stay in school <laughs> that is uh yeah that's very it's reasonable yeah <laughs> so again, i think it's about there's... college dropouts here because i dropped out too <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> just like a pro dropout conversation <laughs> yeah i mean i Again, I think it's, I think it's conditional, Uh, but again, then you got to go then. Yeah. Given, I know your background, you know, then what's up next, right? It's like staring. What is the staring to the abyss? You better become real good at stress management. Like, you know, there's a bunch of other 
forces you gonna have to crank your way through i personally again i like that because i like to be constantly learning and growing and entrepreneurialism which i'm sure you've experienced is like here's a gun to your head it's always there and if you're not learning and growing it's gonna go off so it's up to you it's one foot on a banana peel every day that's hundred percent right uh, and it built, brings humility too. I think, you know, because um, most fledgling entrepreneurs, like, you know, unless they come from a really wealthy background or have the whatever, whatever, like they get treated like shit for a long time. And you got to kind of prove yourself and grind through that and show results irrespective of that. And I think, I think it's actually good. Being naive and having an ego is a really good mix for being an entrepreneur in the very early phases. Right. <laughs> and hopefully at some point you learn how full of shit you are. It's funny, like no more than I've ever obviously known before and it's it's actually eroded certain aspects of not my confidence but just yeah yeah definitely so you dropped out and so what'd you do from there you said sorry mom I'm not gonna I I promise I won't be flipping burgers yeah more or less and then I wanted to get into to beverage for some completely unknown reason it was just kind of a beverage is a cool I wanted to do some like coconut water because I like coconut water and I like I like holy base I like these different herbs I was like maybe I'll want to do some beverage with all that stuff in it and then there's like I don't know where to start and then a a female friend's boyfriend at the time was starting kombucha company and we met and we kind of hit it off and then I joined up with what what he was doing um and what was actually important about that so one thing I kind of glossed over that's an important part of my background is you know, I grew up eating a standard American diet and that tends to come along hand in hand with not being particularly financially well off. And, you know, so when I was like 14 or in my early teens, I was overweight, I was anxious, I had insomnia and like not going too great. And I had this like epiphany at 14, like it's not going to create a high quality life. So just like out of nowhere with no support, no provocation, really, I just started exercising totally changed my diet, totally changed my friends, started self-psychoanalyzing, eventually got into therapy, like took all these different steps to really change the course of my life. That's a wild turn because typically people are very much a product of their environment and it's extraordinarily challenging to get out of that habit. I mean, because there's so many habits throughout your life that you, I imagine you're like a teenager and when you're talking about this, that you've created for years and even in your home, the environment you're in, like changing that, those patterns and habits is like, it's super hard. That's why it's so hard for people to lose weight and make those big changes. What was your motivation and how did you stick to that? It was kind of just like, just reflecting on my existence itself. You know, I wasn't raised religious or atheist or I was raised as though like, I don't even know if I knew what a church was like it was just like I don't know like we didn't even talk about it and but I just started reflecting on like why am I here and like some people believe this and some people believe that and I don't know it's like cumulatively I'm just like whatever the hell this is I at least have the simple knowledge I just I want it to be good and I like I am the only one that's going to be able to make that happen or not happen and so it really just started from that place and it was you know and that's why I actually do well with these kind of sink or swim environments I think it was but where does that come from because that means that you took responsibility really early right that means you're taking responsibility for your own what you put in your body what your body you know looks like feels like all those things 
that's like a lot for people to take on. A lot of people want to say it's, oh, I'm this way because of this and this and this and excuse, excuse, excuse. Like I, it's not me. It's not me. But you're basically saying that you took responsibility super early and realized that you want to change and that you're the only person that can make that change. 100%. But where does that come from? How do you do that? It's so, so, I mean, there are other aspects of my childhood that were challenging, right? So I don't really think I had a lot. It, it wasn't like I was super stoked. My, like my father died when I was very young. And again, the growing up in an impoverished situation. And I had a range of different traumas that I did experience when I was growing up. So my actual like, childhood was pretty challenging. But again, I, I was starting to then go down that path. I have always been a little bit of a different person I don't know was it like an appreciation maybe just for like hey I have one life one body I'm gonna do the best I could yeah that's a big part of it that's a big part of it I, yeah exactly I think it was I almost talk about it as like it's almost that of respect for life a little bit it's just kind of like I don't yeah it is you know I've always been pretty scientifically oriented but always like like flirted with metaphysicality and I just don't I don't think that I think I saw the pathway and was even starting to venture down the pathway that I knew wasn't going to create a positive outcome. And I think I, you know, I just got inspired by the concept of there's got to be something better. There's got to be something good. And the massive self-responsibility piece, that's a great, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I think it kind of comes to that. I mean, I, I think, you know, we chatted a little bit before. I, I have at this point had, I have had a 16 channel EGG. I've had my brain scan. Empirically, my brain and my brain waves do work really differently than the majority of the population. Get into this as much or as little as you want. But like, so that is a piece. So why did you end up getting a brain scan? I'm just curious. <laughs> really? But what kind of scan is this? Can anybody do this kind of scan? No, you need a, like a neuroscientist. Like you need to go to proper like lab. So why would you want to, so what, how did this come about that you would go to a, a brain? Well, chronic curiosity is an ailment I suffer from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's always great to uh, learn. I'm like interested in learning a lot about everything. And that includes myself. Uh, you know, I also got the living shit tested out of my blood like a month ago. Cause I just wanted to learn about a lot of that you know, what, what's going on with my body. I don't know. I always thought it was, you know, it was, it was like a neuro, it was a neurofeedback clinic, but the thing I liked about it is you had a proper, there's like a proper PhD neuroscientist who actually ran it. So what did it say about your brain? That's so different. So we basically have these, our primary brain waves are Delta, Theta, Alpha, Beta, Gamma. Delta is the deepest, Gamma is the highest intensity. And 99.9% .9 of human beings do almost all of their conscious processing or, or really like all of their conscious processing in the beta spectrum. Like sometimes they'll pop up to gamma during hyperactivity, but it's mostly beta, right? So low beta is relaxation, mid beta is concentration, high beta is vigilance, and then gamma is hyperactivity. Theta is that hypnogogic down to subconscious. Sorry, alpha is hypnogogic down to subconscious. Theta is deep subconscious. Delta is like birth, death, coma kind of thing. We always have all the we always have all the brain waves going, but in terms of what we're using actually process. So what they were able to pull out of my my brain scans is I actually do the majority of my processing in high high alpha, 
which is really fucking weird. Like it's like again, they like they're like there's they're, like they couldn't compare it against the DARPA database for brainwaves because there's just like it they don't have enough brains in there that so they don't have a big enough data set. It does tend to be correlated with like savant brains, which has its own pluses and minuses. What's savant brains? Savants are like you know they're like I don't like the thirteen year old who's like really good at piano and they're like i have no idea why this 13 year old is so good at this piano kind of thing you know it's like little little rain man-esque but like i think so my interpretation of it is just i think that my brain and again these things all have pluses and minuses let's be like really clear here this isn't like some magical ticket to neurochemistry wonderland but like i think that i naturally use and able to access more of my subconscious as a part of my regular just processing which means I'm like almost always working with a bigger data set of internal information. And then it's about like, how do I sort it? How do I utilize it? Uh, but I, the thing that I like about it is I think your subconscious is like incredibly powerful. Uh, so there's certain things I'm like terrible at. Like I got an, a, an assistant or I was lucky enough to get an assistant, I think back in October or whatever. And she's literally saved my life. Like, what are you, uh, what are you terrible at? Well, so things were taking like a lot of energy for me. Like, oh God, I've got to schedule this thing. And I've got to look at 10 other people's schedules. And like, it's it's the kind of like the rote stuff. It's the like, you know, it's the kind of mundane, repetitive, just like it's certain aspects of, in certain ways I'm very organized. And in other ways, you know, I, it, I, can, I can do all that stuff. It just is a lot more draining for me. And I'm not naturally great at it. If I can have, if I'm fortunate enough to have somebody come in and take that off my plate, I can actually lean into the parts of my brain that I'm naturally better at. And the fortunate thing is the parts of my brain that I'm better at are the things that are less common. So I then have to make sure I'm not an insane person and people can actually understand what I'm saying and what I'm trying to make happen. Um, so as long as I retain my communication capacities, like I'm pretty good to go. But yeah, and I think that's a really useful setup. So again, it's like allows me to lean into my spikes and with where we're at right now, that's as a company that it's very useful to have. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Have you ever experienced lost sales due to downtime caused by a corrupt CSV, malicious attack or rogue third party app? Even if it hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. That's why brands like Pier 1 Import, Lord & Taylor, Hasbro, and Staples use Rewind to keep their store protected. Rewind gives you peace of mind, protects your data, and saves you time and money by easily restoring your data, automatically backing up and keeping a record of every change you make. Get a 30-day free trial with Rewind today by going to rewind.io slash stairway to CEO. That's R-E-W-I-N-D dot I-O slash stairway to CEO. Spring is in the air, which means summer will be here in no time. But is your patio or backyard ready for action? With Outer, you can get your outdoor space decked out with the best looking sustainable sofas, chairs, coffee tables, eco-friendly rugs, and don't forget their celebrity favorite, 
bug shield blanket to keep those mosquitoes away. Want to check it out for yourself? Browse over a thousand outer customers' backyards online and visit a neighborhood showroom in your own neighborhood to experience outer products in person before you decide to buy. And when you decide to buy, you can get $200 off on furniture purchases by using the code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. That's $200 off amazing furniture purchases with the promo code STAIRWAY200 on liveouter.com. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Boxu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to Gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to CEO podcast. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So and going back, I guess, to your background and kind of how you got to where you are, I think it's incredible that you've spent so many years basically formulating kind of the similar drink, right? <laughs> you went from kombucha to Obi probiotic soda. Um, I mean, you were working on that for eight plus years, right? So you have been working in this uh, kind of same industry on a very similar drinks for many, many, many years now. What are some of the things that you learned, I guess, from having your, I, I would guess, is it safe to assume that OB was kind of like your first real startup company? Yeah, that that's right. Totally. So that was the first thing that like the ground up I built and, and led, you know, eventually at the end. So we had, I had like a four year R and D process which is also where I kind of came, came up with the idea of like, okay, let's take this thing and let's turn it into a soda and the Trojan horse aspect of it and all that. And near the end of that R&D process, I met my current David, um, current business partner, David Lester. Um, and we've been working together for, for 10 years since. But yeah, that was my first kind of from the ground up. I mean, th- I mean, there's so many learnings uh, on so many layers. But I think, you know, lesson for uh, some of the biggest things that I've taken away that are m- meaningful is it's really like dialed in around this like e- EQ and soft skill aspect. Like it's, com- you know, there's a book called Working with Emotional Intelligence and then there's Working with Emotional Intelligence 2.0, which does a great job kind of laying out the empirical case for EQ in business uh, and Harvard Business Review has also got some great essays on it. And they've also got some great essays on leadership, you know, team building and culture and stuff that dip into this data quite a bit. So the empirical case for it is, you know, pretty straightforward and and well-established at this point. But, you know, just when you do get up into building, leading teams, constructing culture, um, leading people in general, how absolutely crucial investing in your EQ is and investing in high EQ teams and facilitating environments where EQ is paramount. I mean, the, the 
you know, at, at senior leadership levels, like 80 to 90% of your job success is, is basically tied to your EQ. Yeah. How do you describe EQ though? Because I think most people think EQ is empathy, right? But EQ means so many different things and, and kind of how can you break down? I think there's like four different areas or something, right? That define what EQ is. Can you maybe go into those? Yeah, it'd be hard for me to rattle them off the top. It's like social skills and empathy is one of them. And, you know, but basically EQ, yeah, you're totally right. It's it's more of like a comprehensive domain. The quickest shorthand for EQ is actually just emotional maturity. That's like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really where it kind of comes in, you know, and it's like your inter- interpersonal landscape, your external landscape how you communicate with people. I mean, we have, for example, so we've got a range of values at Olipop and one of them is actually engaged empathy. So it's a slightly different format. A lot of empathy is just understanding kind of where people are. And then maybe you pat yourself on the back. So it'll be like, life for homeless people must be hard. And then you're like, yeah, I did it. I, I understand, yeah. Right, right. And it's a little bit phoned in. Uh, we And we actually have engaged empathy, which means like, okay, great. I'm glad you get it. Now, like, is there a way you can leave the situation better than you found it? Um, which I think is actually the most kind of pro-humanistic aspect of it. But yeah, I mean, EQ is, I just, it's, you know, it's being able to, to, to see where people are and really connect with them, show up with humility, communicate clearly, be socially high functioning, building trust and communicating clearly is one of the most foundationally important byproducts of operating with high EQ. Actually, you know, I'm not a very militaristic dude, net net but there was a navy seals related story that i thought was really interesting simon senek who's like a well-known you know author in the field he was interviewing a navy seal officer and basically was like okay you've got the navy seals and you've got the kind of elite team in the navy seals what in the world could possibly make for an elite navy seal team given that they're all pretty elite over here and the guy was basically just like, look, the, the people who qualify for that team are not actually always the highest performers, the most combat effective or whatever, whatever. It's the people who are the best at building trust. Those are the people who are the, can, can get that transfer. I would take a medium performer, maybe even a low performer who's phenomenal at building trust and consider them for that team over the absolute ace performer who's not that good at building trust because sometimes those guys should be the most toxic people in your organization because they're performing so well, it's hard to validate getting rid of them from a liabilities perspective, but it's also hard to get validate getting rid of them because they seem to be performing, but if they're causing divisiveness or narcissism or kind of dysfunction inside of your organization, it's like incredibly toxic. And again, going back to like the data that's represented in a lot of these different texts I talked about, you know, a highly cohesive, high trust, collaborative team will outperform a medium performers will outperform a single rock star who isn't able to create that trust any day of the week you know so the brilliant the brilliant asshole kind of psychology isn't actually that great for building an optimally performing team yeah (laughs) and okay and then you asked like what route when i learned so that awareness trickles into every layer of everything that you have to look at and evaluate. So a big one is like investors, which people, you know, entrepreneurs are obviously in a very 
challenging situation because the vast majority of them have to go beg, borrow, and steal to get the funds together to get the, their company moving. And so you're, especially in a, a hyper-capitalist society, you're automatically at a position of supreme disadvantage to the person sitting there with all the cash, right? Especially when you're early on and you're unproven and they're always like, oh God, the risk, the risk, even though it's like- Their job. Well, it's their job and they've invested in 20 things precisely to distribute risk. So the whole thing is just a little bit disingenuous, uh, but irrespectively, oh God, the risk, the risk, and you're unproven and and, and fair enough. It's part of the, it's, you know, if they didn't rattle your cage at all, like they, they probably wouldn't be doing their job. But look, so you end up, you end up dealing, you know, with the, these investors. So you end up becoming like major, major op types. Shareholders in your business, maybe sit on your board. They're crafting the operating agreement. They're crafting the governance structure, co-crafting it with you. So you end up having these like meaningful partners, but you had to bring them in under very challenging conditions, and you know, different experiences I've had around partnerships around investors throughout my career has just shown me like nine times out of 10 that does not is not going to work out for you and sometimes you've got to get your nose bloodied a couple times before you're like okay i don't care how hard this is i'm gonna keep holding out until we find the right investors until we find the right partnerships but uh, like sleeping on the psychology of who's in your business sleeping on the psychology of who you're partnering with externally is a horrendous mistake and it will almost always come back to bite you. You know, it's like, you have to really find people who are actually motivated by the mission, you know, who aren't egoic antisocial personality disorder types who are really focused on business outcomes and really want to partner with you to help you tangibly build your vision. And they'll hold you accountable to that. Like, they should be they should be pushing you but and and the other thing's critical as well is like a, what a lot of these investors do either through just low eq or by design because they've actually come in they're they come in knives out is they'll you know either engineer or naturally every entrepreneurial environment is going to become a high stress pressure cooker it's like you know if, if it doesn't that's almost i'm almost more nervous under those conditions than when it goes through with some regularity so and when that happens, you want a partner who's going to like part, side up with you and say, all right, how do we get this, through this together? You know, there's a lot of investors who, again, unintentionally or literally intentionally manage through stress. So at the time when the entrepreneur is the most anxious and the most like probably sleeping the worst, probably, you know, just doing the worst, then they add extra stress and threat and pressure and then, oh, you've got this like mental health problem in the entrepreneur community. I wonder where it comes from. So yeah, that that evaluation, like knowing how to read, knowing what signs, and I can go into some of the signs if you want me to, but like knowing how to read those signs, knowing what to look for, having the kind of courage and self-respect to <coughs> select, select the right partners across the range is absolutely foundationally crucial.
It's so hard to do though, because just like you said, I think that they, there's a lot of investors that could check all those boxes in the beginning. Cause it's pretty and it's, it's all beautiful and roses in the beginning. And then they sign on and then they're investors and shit hits the fan. And then you're like, oh, I really need help. And they're like, Oh, wait, do we make the right choice? I don't know. <laughs> they start to, then like you said, they become this added stress when you actually really need them the most. And not every investor is like that. There are wonderful investors that are there and, you know, invested with the right intentions because they actually believe in you and the business and stuff like that. But a lot of times I think that's really hard to see early on because they're all just so busy talking about how much they like the business or blah, blah, blah. And it all seems great, but you don't really know until shit hits the fan. Well, that's human beings in general, right? But um, I mean, yeah, hope there's, there, there's a handful of ways to mitigate against that. So one, one strategy that we have used very successfully is if you've got an investor that is ticking a lot of those boxes and you suspect might be, well, for one thing, back up a little bit. One thing that's useful is building a cohort of investors, if you can, so that you're, the investment's a little bit dispersed, right? Which is helpful to, to ensure that like early on before you really know an entity, you're not like selling the kids away, kids off or whatever. So dispersing some of your investment is, uh, is really useful. And then as a part of that dispersed investment, you you know, select an investor or, or two or whatever it is who you know could write a bigger check in the future and if things go well, would have an interest in, in doing so. And then you use the time between that investment and when you need to raise again to engage them, to see how, to see how they do react under those conditions and to have some hard conversations, to have some strategic conversations, to go, do they open up their... Uh, dated reference but their rolodex when you need contacts or like do yeah are they strategically inputting are they hands off or are they hitting you up every two weeks to see what your latest like contribution margin is and it's like just a total pain in the ass so you can like track all that and then when it comes time to raise again like you've actually got some real world data that is a pretty useful that is a pretty useful metric again it assumes that you're going to be able to disperse some of your capitalization but if you are able to do that, you're in good shape. And, and obviously, like, it's oftentimes feast or famine, you know, and part of, on the investment front, and part of your responsibility as the entrepreneur is to build something that is good enough that so a lot of uh, people want to get involved. That's, so that's your part of the equation. That is something you can't just, you can't create something that's a bit whatever and then just kind of go like, oh, why don't I have 55 suitors? Like you've got to do the work on your side. Too. Right, exactly. Yeah. How come no one wants to invest? Yeah. <laughs> so did you find, um, so you did raise money. It looks like over 2 million in funding for OB. And so how did you go from that to Olipop? What was the, what's the story behind Olipop for those listening that don't know the story? Yeah, so, uh, so going back to that whole shift I made in my early teenage years, you know, a big part of that focus ended up becoming nutrition. As I got deeper and deeper into switching over from a very nutrient deficit diet, standard American diet, into a very nutrient dense diet and a more diverse diet, it had pretty profound impacts on my emotional stability and my cognitive clarity, in addition to my physiological health, which I found fascinating. During the kombucha company enterprise, I learned what the microbiome is. So the microbiome is all the non-human microorganisms in and on your body. And there's a thing, there's a part of that called the brain-gut axis. So basically you produce the majority of your neurotransmitters and hormones in your microbiome and it has this profound impact. So light bulb went off for me, like, oh, holy shit, that could have been a part of 
my own personal transformation. And by the way, if more people in the United States, especially, which doesn't have the best track record for health and wellness, um, could experience that shift, we might be looking at a very different, much healthier society filled with more engaged, happy people. So that's really been my motivating factor is just like help to facilitate that. You know, that's ultimately why why I chose to do what I did with OB in terms of creating uh, a product that was innovative and was designed to be supportive to microbiome and digestive function because of all the knock-on effects, benefits of that. That's also what drove the creation of this kind of like soda flavor profile because I'm like, all right, cool. Kombucha is a billion dollar category. That's great. The ready to drink section of soda alone is $40 billion US and in the US and it has 97% household penetration. So like you can create billion dollar categories all day but as long as that $40 billion one is still flooding the market with something that's obviously quite horrendously toxic, it's not going to make that big of a dent. So I started to go after that, you know, and then with OB, uh, to your point, like, yeah, we raised probably a little more than 2 million, but like the, we were growing well. We did exit that in late 2016, just the conditions were appropriate to do so, you know, and then on the other side of that, it was, a, it was a long journey to your point. It was like about seven, eight years doing that and felt like, we, you know, we had had success in certain ways in terms of learning how to grow a business, you know, in triple digits year on year, had a great relationship with a lot of our investors, had a great relationship with a lot of our suppliers, but didn't, didn't necessarily feel like I had fulfilled the scale of the mission I was interested in fulfilling. And so flew up to Japan for a couple of weeks, chilled out, uh, Oh God, I love Japan. Just, but why have you been there before? Or you were just like, no, I'm going to go to Japan. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like all my friends were like, I'm traveling to Bali or whatever <laughs> when they were there in their twenties. I'm like, I'm doing three jobs and building a microbiology lab and going nowhere. Taking a vacation in eight years. <laughs> yeah, basically. So I was like, I finally have a little cash in my pocket. I've always wanted to go to Japan. I'm out. Peace. And I'm whatever. I was there for like a couple of weeks, but so I just kind of chilled out. And then I started reviewing the microbiome literature and saw that there was a pretty material shift away from probiotics and microorganisms to benefit the microbiome and towards what I call dietary interventions. They started studying indigenous hunter-gatherers and their diets and and their their macro and micronutrients and also the health of their microbiomes and all sorts of other things. And I also looked at the translational data and just thought like, this is a much more robust strategy for helping with microbiome functioning and also blood sugar stability is another big thing that we're interested in focused on focused on so that these pillars of fiber prebiotics and nutritional diversity ended up becoming the pillars for the functional formula in olipop which now we've actually done clinical trials uh, with purdue and baylor college of medicine in vitro uh, we got phenomenal results out of them. We're now going to be switching over to human clinical trials and also looking more tightly at metabolic health outcomes. So we'll obviously make announcements as that's all underway. So that's a functional piece. And then, yeah, I'd learned, we had gotten a lot of positive signals around this concept of this healthy soda during OB, uh, but again, felt like that had nowhere near been fully explored and so decided to really double down on it this time and, and really, really go for it and got some great branding uh, and design inputs from some guys who'd now become friends of ours to build, build up the brand identity. Nice. Was this like an agency or something you worked with? 
Yeah, it was uh, two guys out of, out of Florida. But actually, ironically, like we went to this really high end branding agency and before that and probably set like $75,000 of our money on fire. And at the last minute, like had to just be like, this isn't it. And just like, all right, let's find somebody else. It's like, dude, like. That's the thing about design that really sucks. You know, it's just such a money pit because you don't know what you're going to get until it's there. And then you're like, damn it, this is so far off base. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's, and, and I was fortunate enough that I had enough cash to make a decision like that. Cause yeah, I mean, obviously at the end of the day, like the, the branding architecture and design architecture of Olipop is, is foundational to its success. I mean, it really, it really helps to create that first impression, that first attraction for a lot of our customers. And then, and then they try it and they're like, oh, holy shit. I did not expect this to taste like this. Then they look at the sugar and they're like, what? Two grams of sugar and then nine grams of fiber. And it like creates this nice little chain of surprises for them. Yeah. And it's been all from there. I mean, we're now the fastest growing functional refrigerated beverage in the country. Uh, we started a new category in soda called functional soda. We have the lion's share of that category and it's the fastest growing cat beverage category in the country. We had nearly quadruple digit growth 2020. So, you know, it's, it's coming along. Um, it's really it's really growing. I mean, we've grown like pre-pandemic, we had 17 people. We now employ 64 people. So it's grown rapidly. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously you guys have, you've experienced extraordinary success with Olipop. It's been a wild ride, I'm sure. With every wild ride in any business, there's tons of challenges. What's the biggest, most painful challenge or mistake you've made? You know, there was there was a period of time where our co-packing situation got incre- incredibly tight. There is there have been some really intense challenges in in terms of we decided to go into can because cans actually more uh, it's lower CO two footprint for shipping. Cans are less expensive than glass. Plastic is obviously garbage. Uh, so decided to go that route. Right as we were doing that, there ended up being a international can shortage that has only gotten worse and worse and worse. It was like a multi billion shortage of cans and the, all the co-packing for canned products also was similarly under demand. I remember the first co-packer that we signed up with, we had like two runs under them that was like quite successful and they were like mid-sized. It was like perfect. And then they got sold and we had to transfer like emergency status to another co-packer that had like a third of the line speed. And that was really tough for a while until we landed where we're landing now. So you know, all those things have really had really had to be worked through and like building redundancy in the supply chain and leveraging our growth and relationships to kind of build all the, the contracts out. But what's a what's a lesson you've learned the hard way or what's some of the hardest feedback you've gotten? Well, it's like these two things that kind of intersect simultaneously. So it's like on one hand, needing to know where my I need to really grow as like a person and as a communicator, right? So I tend to have more emotional volatility. And when it's when it's good, it's like, it comes off as passion. When it's bad, it comes off as like intense negative emotion, which turns out nobody likes. And, and then when you're the boss, it's even worse. So I've gotten a lot astronomically better at that. I don't think anybody I work with currently would be like, oh yeah, Ben, he like flies off the handle. So one part of it was really learning about how to, manage my own emotion and to really set like make sure 
I'm providing enough concrete data, try to make things more neutral so that people aren't flooded when they're receiving it. And I can actually get the data across in a way where I'm sure they're receiving it. But then hand in hand, it's also about like understanding where my strengths are. It's also about like having enough esteem in and trust in yourself as an entrepreneur and, and your entrepreneurial instinct. And so by like working on myself and working on how I'm communicating and emotionally regulating, it has created a kind of a positive feedback loop, which has made it, made it easier for me to believe in myself. But there are times as an entrepreneur where even if you're not saying it perfectly, if there's something you have to fight for, then there's something you have to fight for. And if you know for sure that that's what's up and like you've really thought about it at length, like you got to still got to step up and take whatever heat you have to take to make sure that that material gets understood, communicated, because all this shit is climbing a mountain. You're, when you climb the mountain, you're climbing yourself. So that's that intern, the more internal responsibility that you are able to take, the more actual empowerment you have in all of your situations. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I'm curious, you know, I know we're running out of time a little bit, but I want to hear you guys close to series B $30 million round. You've got insane celebrity investors. What advice do you have for founders that are fundraising? You've had oversubscribed rounds like every single time. What advice do you have for founders that are like, God, can I just get oversubscribed because this like whole process is a pain in the ass? <laughs> oh God, it's, yeah. It, even even when it's oversubscribed, it's still a pain in the ass, right? So it's always a thing. This is going to sound. I'll try to make it helpful, but like, honestly, spend more time on your underlying concept, right? So you've got it like investors in general, we already talked about the risk thing, but they are risk adverse, right? And they don't want to be the guy, they don't want to be the man or the, the woman. wrong decision. Yeah, they, they don't, don't want to be yeah. the person that basically like, you know, got the wool pulled over their eyes or whatever. So you do need to A, take a lot of time, invest in your concept and invest in your product. So it's, it's, it's solid and it's really well considered from a whole bunch of different angles and you can talk to it or demonstrate that credibly and you've been able to tie it to a meaningful market opportunity and it's also respectful to the investor and you're going to attract a much higher caliber of, of investor and attract a lot more interest with those kind of basic mechanics uh at play and that all that sounds pretty no, no shit sherlock but i i am surprised by the number of startups where you've got again the kind of kooky founder, which has historically been me, who goes like, this is self-obvious, like blah, 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 blah. And I'm not having enough empathy for what the need set actually is of the investor, like what boxes it is going to need to tick for them and, and why. And you really need to be coming to those meetings with that awareness, get that mentorship if you have to, whatever it is. But you need to come to the meetings with those boxes already ticked because that makes their life a lot easier. And then the next piece of it is like, then you do have to build up some momentum and build up some critical mass. You know, one of the biggest shortcuts that many investors use is investor X that I respect or investor Y that I'm competing with or investor W or whatever. Are they, uh, do they think there's something interesting going on with this deal? Because then the more, because then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and that's an, an incredibly important piece of it. And then once you're talking to all those investors, don't just bend over backwards, like be ready to have a fair and tough and healthy conversation. If you don't feel those conversations are healthy, if you feel they're kind of being really arrogant in their approach with you, if you feel they're kind of being abusive in their approach with you, like I really do, like 
the negotiation process for anything, for the contract with a co-packer, for a third party, even someone coming into your business, an investor, the contract negotiation process, the contract is whatever. You got to get to a good thing. It's cool. It's chess. It's fine. Um, how they show up during that process is a phenomenal indicator of what it's actually going to be like to work with them. And this shit hits the fan. So that's also, yeah, super, super useful. How they deal with pushback when you don't agree on things when, yeah, that whole negotiation process. I agree with you. It definitely shows a lot of true colors. I think the other final thing as well, and this is for entrepreneurs coming up, is like also like that bullshit management, like don't bullshit. Like I know it's, it's desperate, but like it is a community where people talk. If you get called off kind of fudging stuff, you know, or being like just hyper unrealistic, you're going to kind of get written off. It's going it, to, it might, there's a high likelihood it's going to come back to haunt you. It haunts investors less than it haunts entrepreneurs. So just like if you're getting started off out, you're building a reputation for yourself, you know, be pragmatic and be honest and build that trust. And even if it's not the right fit, you know, exit this dynamic with in a respectful way and build some of that up. And then, you know, maybe the investor's not ready now, but maybe they'll be better ready in the future, whatever it is. Like that's also, because a big part of how we've swung into this is we have a phenomenal relationship with our investors and not all of the investors, some investors out there, I'm not that into, but in general, we have a good, we have a, you know, we have credibility in that community and that's super, super useful. So keep in mind that this stuff builds up over time and you want to be building up your approach so that it's paying dividends off as you move forward. And on the celebrity side of stuff, you've got the Jonas Brothers, Gwyneth Paltrow, who are a few of the other um, investors you were rattling off earlier before we hopped on? Camila Cabaya's in there, Mindy Kaling's in there, Priyanka Chopra's in there, uh, DeAndre Hopkins is in there. There's a couple actually pretty big ones that we can't quite announce yet, but there's some, like, some of the biggest people are, like, have to some stuff that's got to clear up for them before we can announce this. There is more stuff coming out soon. You know, the thing of that is, so there were a lot of other celebrities that were interested that we didn't end up taking checks from, even though they had substantial star power. And it's because either I didn't feel they were the right, we didn't feel that they were the right for, for the brand kind of writ large, or it's because we weren't really sure, like, how much does this, is this person just trying to spread some cash around? Is this person, pretty much everybody who invested on the celebrity side actually like drinks the product. We even had celebrities who get a ton of products sent to them for free. And they're like, I actually spend, or I send somebody, but I spend my own money to like buy your product. Cause I like, so, and that's important. Like I want people, it's always been very important to me with the celebrities. Like, do they have some understanding? Do they like what we're trying to do? Do they get it? Or do they just think this is another beverage? Do they actually like consuming our product? So that was the kind of, you know, that was the clearance hur hurdle uh, that we put up for the celebrity in investors. But I think at the end of the day, especially as we start, so we do have some engagement opportunities that we're working through with some of these, with some of these partners. And I think when they actually start to hit, a lot of the authenticity is going to come through that's associated with the fact that they're actually real fans of the product. So, and these partnerships or relationships come from, I guess, probably a lot of your current investors or funds that kind of specialize in having those relationships already. That's part of it. I, I believe it or not, some of these investors have heard that we were raising through the grapevine because at this point, we're lucky enough that an Olipop round 
tends to attract a lot of attention in the community. So there were, I'm sure it'll be, he'd be okay with me saying this, like DeAndre Hopkins, for example, is a phenomenal human being, uh, wide receiver for the Arizona Cardinals. Like he, he just was like shopping at Whole Foods and like emptying the shelf of all the Olipop every time he went shopping. And then his manager heard that we were raising it was like look we don't normally do this but like deandre loves the product and you know if you want to you know he'd, he'd come in and that's like exactly so a certain amount of that a certain amount of these celebrities they they actually did a, approached us which i'm very grateful for some of them was through networks some of them was through investors none of it was like cold solicited by us but yeah it's it's been mostly the network effect with a handful of them you know, approaching us when they heard we were raising. Tell us about the name Olipop. How did that come up? Sounds like lollipop. There's very little sex appeal to this answer. So uh, Ollie is actually short for, get ready, oligiosaccharide. Um, and then pop short for pops. So oligosaccharides are, are a family of prebiotics. And we use ingredients from that family of prebiotics in our product. And they're actually some of the most empirically studied prebiotics so uh dave and i had like an excel sheet with like 75 names on it and it's that like what's ownable what's trademarkable what is fun and cute solid pop kind of is one of the ones that we can actually i gotta give credit i i have to give credit david is the one that came up with that and at first i was like if people call us lollipop i am going to set myself on fire and i've been lucky that it almost never happens. So except for right now, except for what I just did. You're fine. No, it is similar <laughs> to lollipop. Yeah, it's a thing. But uh, that was something I was really worried about. And it's a great, it's a great, it's a great name. Yeah. What um, final advice do you have for entrepreneurs tuning in that are aspiring to build something as awesome as you have? And what is next for Olipop? Constantly work on yourself. Uh, it's It comes part and parcel with entrepreneurialism. So constantly be growing, challenging, learning yourself, be able, like have values and principles that you can articulate that you're willing to fight for. And that means something to you and that you considered and simultaneously, you know, be ready to morph and upgrade, like, you know, upgrade yourself in an authentic way as you go. And that will always pay back dividends because you are your own best resource uh, and build something that actually solves a human problem don't just build something because you want to go out and make a paycheck because the failure rate and all this stuff is like so high. I think solving a real problem in both increases your chances of success. And also if you do end up failing or need to pivot, at least you did something that was worth your time independently of everything else. In terms of what's next for Olipop, we are, you know, we ended last year at about 9,000 retail doors by Q3 of this year, we'll be in North of 20. So this massive door expansion for us, I have been working very, very diligently on a handful of new flavors, which I'm really excited about. I still do all of the formulation, uh, which I don't even know how I do that, but I do. I'm very excited. It's, I've been working on some very big flavors that our customers are going to get really excited about, but they have been absolutely backbreakers to get done to the Olipop standard of quality. So uh, so new flavors this year, big retail expansion, and moving into more, you know, increasingly kind of mainstream retailers and, you know, more varied geographies are going to be really big on the list for us. 
When are the new flavors going to launch? So what I can talk about is we've got Tropical Punch dropping end of March, which tastes like a modernized version of the red stuff I used to drink as a kid. And then we've got a really huge partnership coming up that I can't talk much about, but there's a very weird flavor associated with that. And then the other new big product uh, flavor drops are probably going to be in that like August-ish time frame. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, can't wait to check it out and try some Tropical Punch. Thanks so much, Ben, for joining me on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your story. Great conversation, Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.